You're listening to The Road to Philanthropy with Gary Cohn, a podcast series on giving and working with nonprofits. This podcast is produced by Painted Rock Advisors, a consulting hub providing services to the philanthropic and nonprofit communities. We bring together your values and wealth with opportunities to do good work and make the world a better place. What can we do to help you? Contact us at paintedrockadvisors at gmail.com. Hi, Jonathan Boring have interrupted this program to introduce my own podcast. It's called the Social Spice Podcast. It is a show covering the ever-growing topic of social media marketing and just how a few simple tweaks to your digital outreach can change the entire course of your business. Let's get you cooking with fire. Again, the name of the podcast is the Social Spice Podcast, available on your favorite podcast platform. And remember, we're here to help. Hi, this is Gary Cohn. Welcome to The Road to Philanthropy. This is our third discussion about the charitable nonprofit and philanthropic world. Thank you for joining us. Much has taken place since our last podcast. We're looking at an ever-growing pandemic, to mask or not to mask. A new vaccination is now rolling out and hope that 2021 will see the world moving forward. The issues of nonprofits and philanthropists still take center stage. Homelessness, food insecurity, and most of all, physical health and mental health. And then there's our new political arena that's on the agenda. Today, we have the honor of hosting Sarah Jennings, Senior Philanthropic Gift Officer with the V Foundation for Cancer Research. Sarah brings over 20 years of experience in the charitable giving world. Prior to the V Foundation, Sarah worked with Alzheimer's Association, Autism Speaks, and the Doheny Eye Institute. She's a graduate of Colgate University, better known for its telecast on the College Bowl in the 1960s. Welcome, Sarah. Hi, Gare. How are you? I'm very good. Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Why don't we get started talking about the V Foundation? Maybe you could tell us how it got started and what it stands for. Well, the V Foundation was started by Jimmy Valvano, and he was a very famous basketball coach, North Carolina State. He was diagnosed with cancer when he was only 46 years old. He was the first humanitarian award recipient. It was the Arthur Ashe Courage Award in 1993. And during the first ESPYs, he made probably the most famous speech in the last 50 years in sports. His battle with cancer and the fact that he wanted to start a foundation to raise money for cancer research. And a very short few months after this broadcast, he succumbed to his cancer. He was great friends with his rival, Coach K, also was really well known in a lot of sports circles, not just basketball, but uh, professional sports as well. ESPN, decided to step up after Jimmy passed, and they provided an endowment in order to create the V Foundation. And since the beginning of this creation, the V Foundation has raised over $250 million for their endowment. Wow, that is a significant amount of money. What is different about the V Foundation today? How is it organized as opposed to when it first started? Well, when it first started, it was just a very few people who knew Jimmy well. Jimmy's brother also was the president of the foundation, chair of the board. He's since stepped down, but he is very involved with us. We have 50 employees spanning a number of states. It's primarily in North Carolina. It's really grown exponentially, and we have gift officers that cover territories coast to coast, raising money for the foundation. Let's go personal for a moment, if we can. What can you share with us about your path from Colgate University to your current position today at the V Foundation? 
<laughs> a circuitous route, to say the least. I spent 10 years in New York theater. And after that, I went into sales. I was in radio sales, real estate sales, international film and TV distribution sales. And what happened was I decided at a certain point following 9-11, I had a number of friends who were impacted by that circumstance. And I really wanted to segue into the nonprofit world and to do something that really made a difference. My first nonprofit development job was at the Doheny Eye Institute. And I worked for Lee Jackman for four years. That was a great training ground because it was my first nonprofit foray into the health sciences. And I actually had to attend postdoc lectures in order to understand what I was raising money for. Because the only thing that I knew about ophthalmology when I got this job was the fact that you had to go to the eye doctor every year and upgrade your glasses or your contact lenses. Um, it was a steep, steep learning curve, but it was a wonderful way to get into the health sciences field as a development officer. Can you tell us a little bit about why you do the work you do? What interests you in nonprofit as opposed to being back in the corporate world? You know, when you raise money in a nonprofit situation, you see the best of people. People who are interested in giving are selfless. They're thinking about an opportunity that is above and beyond their own personal gain or their own personal circumstance. They are contributing to increasing the goodness of present day as well as the future. And they're basically good, selfless people. And I wanted to be around good, selfless people. So let's talk a little bit about your role at the foundation. I will, for transparency's sake, say to the audience that Sarah and I worked together at Alzheimer's Association for a number of years. And so we got to know each other pretty well. And I know what drove her at the Alzheimer's Association. Um, but what drives you and what, what excites you about your role at the V Foundation? You know, I think it would be a real stretch to say for anyone who is listening to this, that you have not been personally affected by cancer. In my journey of understanding exactly how many cancers there are and what our challenges are in terms of funding cancer research and really getting a handle on this, my 36-year-old niece was diagnosed with breast cancer and she had a double mastectomy just prior to my joining the V. So my niece's experience, as well as one of my best friends in LA, having prostate cancer, really motivated me to join this organization. And I think the more personal you make the story, not only yours, but understanding the stories of your donors, you really connect them to your organization's mission and purpose. And it gives someone the power of doing something to affect change. It's a wonderful thing. Now, when we were at the Alzheimer's Association, we had fundraising was, was our main role, but there also was a science and technology side of it that did uh, institutions and, and annual conferences on the disease. Does that happen with the V Foundation also? It certainly does because in order to grant the monies that we grant to either young researchers or people that are already uh, well underway in their careers, we have a MedSci board that reviews all the proposals. So you have everything from someone right past their postdoc days, starting their research and clinical trials to someone who's been in the game 
for 10 to 20 years who wants a second or third grant. So we actually petition the best cancer research institutes coast to coast, and we offer an opportunity for them to submit a proposal to us to be considered for each fiscal year, and that's how it works. And is there a certain dollar amount that you give when you do research grants, or it depends on the grant request? It depends on the request and also the length of the study. For example, we could give a three-year grant to a new researcher for 200000 per year in order to really kick off their clinical trials. I think it's hard for people to not have a multi-year grant, when, especially when they're first starting out, in order to really support their research. People that have a well-established clinical trial set up or they're working within an institute or a university and you know, they have a team of people, their proposal might be different. It might be just for one specific trial. Are there specific priorities that the V Foundation has for the coming year? Well, in the coming year, you know, we're really focused on a number of things. Uh, we have a new initiative to support African-American researchers, and we have a couple of very well-known people affiliated with the V Foundation, Stuart Scott among them, who was a famous broadcaster on ESPN, and we have a fund in his name, and also Robin Roberts from Good Morning America, who had her own very intense and on-camera battle with cancer. She's extremely courageous, and she started a foundation and works in tandem with us as well. We are all facing the impact of COVID-19 on our work and our personal lives, and I could never have imagined back in March that we'd still be sitting here today in quarantine or in lockdown, as, as they say. What are the impacts of, of the disease of COVID-19 been on your work? I'm glad you asked that because they've been intense on a number of levels. First and foremost, professionally, for the people that we support, it's understandable that fundraisers and donors would pivot to funding COVID research because it's, it's a pandemic and it is absolutely crucial and it is affecting the world. So what happened was a lot of people that were involved in research pivoted to trying to figure out how to eradicate COVID. And in so doing, they may have sidestepped their own research in cancer. And what happens is if your clinical trial is interrupted for a month, it puts you behind two months. So virtually, cancer research has been set back two years because of COVID. Also, the stock market, as you know, has been a roller coaster ride. So a lot of the people that I talked to are very concerned about their portfolios. Uh, they were reluctant going forward to try to predict the future. And they became very conservative. And some of them just said, well, I think we need to wait until 2021 to see where we are. The impact of COVID on relationships with people have been significant. We're not having face-to-face meetings with family or with friends or anything like that. And fundraising and, and as a major gift officer, your most important uh, role is to meet face-to-face with a donor or a donor prospect. How has that been impacted uh, over the last nine months? Well, it's absolutely exponentially impacted. And it is impossible to do this work the way you normally do it unless you are face-to-face with a person. A lot of communication, as you know, is nonverbal. 
and it's hard through an email or a Zoom call or a text message to get a read on someone, especially if you've only met them once or twice. And in my case, I'd just been with the organization less than a year, so I had only met a few people. And I was able to do quite well sending cards, making phone calls, trying to set up a rapport over the miles, but there's no comparison to sitting down with somebody and getting a read in person. Earlier in the year, probably about April or May, I had one of my clients. We got tired of Zooming, so we ended up in a park in West LA having a picnic lunch across the table. And she was at one end of the table, and I was at the other end of the table trying to <laughs> keep our relationship going. It was a challenge <laughs> for the most part. <laughs> when you advise your donors and discuss with them their interest in your work, how do you ascertain and understand what their interests are? Well, you know, we have such a broad spectrum of things that do fund. It's important to get a read on their personal experience, whether it's been something that they have been in recovery from, if they've lost a loved one, if they have a child or a grandchild that's suffering from cancer. You really have to decide exactly what direction the donor wants to go in before you get too far down the line with proposing anything. It's listening and also asking open-ended questions where it gives them an opportunity to reveal themselves. And I think sometimes people get wrapped up in talking about their own particular organization rather than letting the donor tell their story. And one of the things that I learned in the theater is storytelling takes many forms, but there are a number of sides to it. You have to make sure that the donor tells their story. And some people are better at that than others. So you have to really ask somewhat probing questions to get them going and also to have them feel comfortable with you and sharing a confidence. Sometimes I feel being a major gift officer is like being a bartender in the 1950s. That's uh, not an inaccurate comparison. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's I know, five you o'clock know, somewhere all the time. So there you go. <laughs> you and I are from a uh, generation of seasoned professionals. Uh, that's a nice way of saying we're older. <laughs> and, you know, millennials uh, tend to be into the web, into social media, into LinkedIn, all the modern conveniences that you have. But I know that you do a number of things that are, that are sort of traditional and old-fashioned, you could say, in a way. Why don't you talk about that for a minute, and what that impact is on people? Well, here's my motivation for that. Um, not only because I'm personally of a certain age group, but people that have the kind of money that I'm requesting are not 35 years old, unless they're participants in the, in the great tech boom, and you know we can count those on one hand. I think that you have to be sensitive to the kinds of methods of communication that a 70 plus person would use. Most of the time, it's not email. It's certainly not Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Although if they're sharing pictures of their grandchildren with someone, Facebook. But you really have to understand the fact that if someone calls and they don't know the number, they'll hang up. If you send an email and it's unsolicited, it will be deleted. So it leaves you very few things. One of them is handwriting personal notes. And you know that I just wear out the pens with that. I think it's really important to give somebody an opportunity to communicate with you at a convenient time for them. 
If they have your business card, they can call you when it works for them. And if you do happen to send an email through or a text message, they'll recognize your number if they have your business card in front of them. You know, a lot of people will wish happy birthday to friends and family and colleagues over Facebook. And I'm kind of old fashioned. I'll pick the phone up and call someone. And they'll say, oh, you're calling me. That's, that's so great. It's unusual. It's different because no one makes phone calls today. And uh, I think that's, you know, between writing notes, which you do a tremendous amount of note writing and, uh, and phone calling, uh, which we both do. Uh, I don't do as much note writing as you do. I should. But no one can read my handwriting anyway. So that's why <laughs> I don't do it. You've had a, a very successful career in the development world. And you've had many relationships and you've closed many, many gifts over the years. Can you tell us about one of your favorite donor experiences? Well, you know very well who I'm going to mention because you were there. Connie Kiter was a philanthropist in L.A. for decades. We met Connie because her husband had suffered from Alzheimer's for years. The Alzheimer's Association and then Alzheimer's L.A. helped her and her family tremendously. You and I were at the luncheon when I asked her for a million-dollar gift and she looked at us and she said, listen, I'll get you halfway there, but I want to do a match. The organization got behind her matching gift. She ultimately gave the 500000 and was poised to give the second half. And unfortunately, she died before she was able to do that. But Connie had a great sense of humor. She adored her family. She wanted to have her relationship with her husband remembered during a time when he was vibrant and fun and a wonderful guy. And through telling her story with a direct mail appeal, we made up the difference and came to a half a million in her gift. And what was your most favorite experience with her other than her saying yes to the half million dollar gift? She invited my husband and my son to her country club for dinner. The fact that she wanted all of us to come really touched me. So we went to the table my son was really nervous because he wasn't sure what to wear. And he probably tried on 10 different outfits before he found the right one. And he sat down at the table and he didn't really understand how it worked in a private club. So he said, hey, Connie, where's the menu? And she said, look, Foster, I'll tell you exactly what to order. So <laughs> she told him and he ordered it. And then he looked at what she ordered and he said, Connie, can I taste yours? Yours looks pretty good. So he tasted her meal and he said, wow, you know, the next time I come to this restaurant, I think I'm going to order that. <laughs> well, I think what it, what it shows is that that personal relationship you had with her, uh, that she wanted to include your family in a, in a celebration of her gift and et cetera. It really talks about how important the relationships are that we build with donors. Well, honestly, after all, it really is a family affair. And if you think about it, if you think about uh, someone who's 70 plus and either is the matron or the, or the patriarch of the family, um, they include their families in the conversation more often than not. I, her daughter, Kathy, was involved, her son, um, grandchildren. They were involved with us as well because they were very well aware of what this gift meant to Connie honoring their grandfather and her husband. And you remember we had an annual event where we had a person of the year and she was honored. And actually her gift was in memory of her husband and going forward, that honor was named for Connie. So I think uh, naming opportunities resonate with people 
who want their family legacy to live on in different ways. And she was one of those people. One of the things I always like to say is this is a learning experience for the people that are listening. And we talk about closing gifts and our great prospects and our great donors. But tell me something about a donor prospect that got away from you, that you didn't close. Tell us what happened there. You know, I think the most important thing is to read someone correctly. And I can't give you only one example. I have many examples of perhaps misreading someone or thinking that they're interested in a certain thing when they have another interest. But I will tell you about how I came into a relationship with this person because it started with someone who was so upset with the organization. I answered the phone and they were screaming through the phone. They were so mad. I brought that person from the point of screaming to just a normal conversation and then a meeting. I thought that the donor was interested in a certain thing and it turned out he wanted to start something in his son's honor who happened to have autism. People had been talking to him about the wrong thing. They thought he was only interested in research and what he wanted was to make a statement that was more personal in his son's honor rather than what he felt was a more impersonal gift, just giving to general research. You think that you know someone or you think you have a good idea of them and you could be going down the wrong path. Well, I know in my background, I had a, a donor prospect when I was with the Technion uh, University, the research university in Israel. And this donor was a CEO of a public company in Silicon Valley who had just retired. And he sat on several public company boards in Silicon Valley. And you knew what his wealth was publicly because he was such a public disclosures and public corporations and have to disclose major stockholders. So we knew he had $10, $15 million in stock in a number of different companies worth probably $100 million. And we had him meet with us a number of times. We had him meet the president of the university, the head of the American Friends Society in, in America. We had him met, meet two or three donor, uh, I'm sorry, two or three researchers uh, that came out from Israel to meet with prospective donors. And when he finally asked us for proposals, we gave him a proposal where he wanted it, he wanted a proposal in the million dollar range, and he couldn't make his mind up. And this went on and on and on. And finally, he gave us a gift, and it was $1,000. And it was like, where did this come from? What did we do wrong? <laughs> we still don't know to this day um, what happened and why we missed it, uh, but we certainly missed it. Uh, but we all have those kind of experiences from time to time. Going into the new year, because of the experience that we've had with COVID and people staying at home, you're going to feel a little uncomfortable and rusty when you start getting back in touch with people and sitting down with them. And it's kind of like having a facility with someone when you first meet or you go out on a first date. You're very stiff and nervous and you don't really know what to talk about. You want to put your best foot forward, but you're a little bit embarrassed because you're out of practice. And what I would like to say to people is everyone is in the same boat. It's not like you all of a sudden are Rip Van Winkle and you wake up 20 years later and you haven't been in the public or around people. None of us have. So I think the message really for the new year is if we all relax a little bit, and we understand that everybody is a little bit on edge, it'll be a lot easier to get back in the game rather than think 
of what you've missed or what you have to make up because we're all at the same place. And thank you for joining us today. It's been great to hear about the V Foundation, learn a little bit about it, and learn a little bit more about your career and your background. And listeners, I'm sure, will will have really enjoyed the experience. Well, one, one final note, if people are interested in reading more about the V Foundation, go to v.org and we have a very robust website and also an opportunity for you to contribute. Thank you for listening. We want to stay connected with you. Be sure to stay connected with our community by giving a like to our Facebook page and following our Instagram at paintedrock underscore advisors. Our podcast is available on all of your favorite platforms. We'll see you at our next release. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.